So I want to bring this to life right away by inviting Greg up here to share with us uh, how he encountered his challenges with his original invention. So Greg, welcome. Good to have you up here. Hello. Hi, it's nice to meet all of you. I'm Greg Favalora, and uh, I'm going to tell you a five-minute version of what is usually a hour-long story when told uh, in other venues about inventing and almost commercializing 3D displays when this process of tech looking for a market starts out kind of awesome and then becomes painful and then it becomes this patent sale a whole 12 years later. Uh, and by way of introduction, th so th this was a previous chapter of my life that ended about three years ago. My day job is helping to run a product engineering consultancy up the road in Arlington that does lens design, everything from the Xbox Connect to um, toys. So this was our product. Um, the company, Actuality Systems, which was based in a number of places. It started in my apartment in Central Square, then moved to Reading, then moved to Burlington, then moved to Bedford uh, before we collapsed. Created this device that looked like a crystal ball. For scale, I show it there in the corner with a uh, Sharpie pen. It would create imagery that looks like a hologram about the size of a basketball, or actually about the size of a head and it would create floating 3D images that you could see without having to wear those glasses that you wear at the movie theater and see it from any point of view all the way around. For example, here's a picture of uh, a cancer patient who's doing very poorly. Uh, he has a brain tumor and is laying down looking up at the ceiling. In, after eight years in existence, we thought was the best use of this technology was planning uh, cancer treatment uh, methods using external beam radiation oncology. So it's a complex product, and I won't really go into it in much depth, haha, except to say uh, it worked by shining thousands of patterns of light onto a rotating screen really quickly, uh, 10,000 times a second. And that took quite a few technical miracles to work out. So this is sort of the one slide of uh, my little lesson to you tonight. Uh, the overarching lesson is that even if you have an, an awesome product, you really do need to deeply understand at least one market where warm-blooded actual human customers will write you actual checks that you can cash in a bank. And you need enough money, more than you think you need, especially if you're working on hardware, to make the thing so that it really works well. It always takes more than you thought. <sighs> okay, so this is a painful tale. So at first, uh, uh, we figured that if we built this hologram, and mind you, this is something I was obsessed with since I was an eighth grader entering this kind of stuff into science fair contests. Uh, we thought if we built this amazing thing, people would buy it. Uh, so we had some guesses about where, who would use it. I mean, we're not completely idiotic. We thought at first it would be extremely useful in mechanical CAD, which is the relationship to the other speaker tonight. We thought that customers could save tons of money if uh, you could do virtual prototypes out of light, instead of wasting money on interim prototypes or rapid prototypes, or what was then the first 3D printing bubble uh, back in the late 90s. Anyway, we focused on this epic task of building this device. Uh, it turned out with insufficient funds. So in phase one, in 1997, when all these dot-coms were getting money, like barbecue sauce portals and like weird chocolate bar things were raising tens of millions of bucks, it took me two and a half years to raise a measly one and a half million bucks uh, from angel investors. 
And it was so hard, me and my friends working in a basement, like I said, in Central Square. It got to the point where I, I talked to, I think, 40 different venture capital firms, a ton of different angels. I just needed a million and a half bucks. I finally got one guy to say, yeah, yeah, I'll give you 100K, uh, but you have to raise another 300K before I'll write that check. So at least he was the first guy in, or first gal in, so to speak, and then I can do my first close. So the technology problem was, at the time, I was coming out of college and grad school where I had a gadget that looked nothing like what we were trying to sell. I had this thing that was like scavenged pen light lasers, 64 lasers from those things that you use, that I ripped apart and put on a board. And then I, I was bribing these uh, Harvard physics lab uh, uh, machine shop people to like make them for me after hours. And then I had this like spinning mirror and a spinning little piece of plexiglass. And it kind of made like a little thing of HIV enzymes float in the air. And, and it was so insane that we weren't getting any money. So finally, I introduced myself uh, through a lot of work to this guy, Poe Bronson, who if you were around in the 90s doing startups, you would have heard of Poe Bronson, who wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal saying, isn't anyone making anything anymore? And I was like the poster child for that. It was, here's a kid in his basement looking at HIV. Why isn't anyone writing him a check? And that's what it took to finally get that first uh, bit of money. So uh, a lesson there was about having chutzpah. Like you, you just got to be hustling all the time. An example of hustle in the late 90s was have an envelope of information about you on your person at all times. So if you have a chance to like accost Larry Ellison before he gives a big talk at Harvard or someone like Poe Bronson, you could say, hey, let me do a favor. I'll take you to the airport, but can I just tell you about my startup? Okay, bye. Because then like after the talk, everyone with lesser guts than you accosts them and you've kind of missed your chance. So I'll stop talking about this first phase in a moment except to highlight the technical difficulty. It was a 100 million pixel display. Who cares? Well, that's 100 times more than most displays. That's probably a 1 or 2 million pixel display. It was the highest resolution display ever built. And oh, by the way, it was a hologram. And to make it work, you basically needed like dilithium crystals. You needed this thing called DLP, which is a little semiconductor chip that only TI made. And TI is the biggest pain in the butt company to work with that you'll ever find. And we had to beg them for years to give us this chip. And oh, by the way, there's no data sheet. So we had to reverse engineer how to talk to this thing. Uh, so that sucked. And we're only six people. But I got my million and a half bucks, and we got an office, and hooray. So in phase two, um, this is what my board lovingly called the many-year fishing expedition looking for a market. So we had raised maybe another eight or nine million or dollars or so in a series of rounds. They brought in a mature grown-up to run the company who came out of Silicon Valley, places like McAfee and Netscape. And he looked at this really kind of weird prototype that we had that sort of barely worked, and he took on the task of, let's sell this thing. Let's see if people will write checks for this gizmo. And they did. We had a lot of research labs who wanted it, a lot of grad students who thought it'd be cool to do three-dimensional graphics on it. So this kind of brings us to the second or third or whatever lesson, which is listen really carefully tonight when he teaches you about what a whole product is and what the distinction is between a little component, like a spark plug, and a solution or a big thing like a car. Uh, for example, in our case, we had a display that would connect to a computer either from gigabit ethernet or this thing called SCSI that probably only half of us here remember what that is, and, uh, and an API. So an API is a way to talk to this device, but that assumed that the customer was really smart about computer graphics programming, meaning like only a handful of people in, in America. So I had just enough money to place this one bet, which was, okay, not only does my software team need to completely reinvent how rendering algorithms work and how to draw a display device in cylindrical coordinate space, which no one had ever done before, let's use our last remaining pennies to build what's called an OpenGL API. That way, 
if they have a well-behaved graphics application like SolidWorks or a thing that shows pharmaceutical designers some molecules on the screen, they plug in our software, plug in a display, and boom, whatever they were doing continues to work while a hologram of all this stuff floats in the air. And that got us a lot of the way there. Uh, but it uh, was also this beginning of a long, painful story for us. So the very condensed version of what happened was we did what our mentor said and what any smart person would do, which is to figure out a market, go to a whiteboard, on the horizontal axis, write the names of market segments, things like mechanical CAD, pharmaceutical design, luggage scanning. Remember, this is like just post-2001. Uh, military visualization. Porn was really never on the list, and that was kind of weird anyway. Uh, video games, oil and gas, uh, and a couple other things like that. Then, on the y-axis, you write the 10 biggest accounts you could think of, or the accounts that you could sort of reasonably hope to get into, and you talk only to those accounts. You work your tail off trying to get into those places. You might have to write letters. You might have to sit on their doorstep. You might have to fax them, if you know what faxing is. Uh, or send these little brief emails. And we could talk later about what a good email looks like, and that's some supplementary material available to you guys after this class. In none of those cases, so sorry, here's a seduction that'll trip most of you up. In all of those cases, they said, this is the best thing ever. Your parents must be so proud of you. I want 10 of these. And you say, great, write me a check. It's 100K. And they go, oh, I don't have $100,000. Can you like, show me a paper explaining why it's worth $500,000 so that my check will kind of earn me 400K in profits? And I'll say, no, I'm really sorry. And so you go on to the next market. So the lesson there is, if you're going to go waste a whole ton of money on engineering, Make sure you don't just know the names of markets or the workflow of those market segments. Understand who'd be writing you a check, why they would make money from writing you a check, and so on and so forth. Really map the living heck out of this flow of money. Uh, and as an engineer, I have this sort of anti, well, then when I was younger and naive, anti-salesperson, anti-marketing bias. I thought if you're not using diodes or writing code, you're just wasting my time, go away. And that a good salesperson was just like, usually like a guy, you know, who had like a hairy chest and like this big necklace and stuff. Oh, I was so wrong. When I started doing marketing and sales, I realized this is really hard stuff. So it would have been much wiser if I and if you had budgeted some money for a really good marketing person. And by marketing person, I don't mean at first writing ad copy, even though that's valuable. I mean someone who does product marketing, someone who could really deeply understand a customer and really define the market that that customer would buy into and then do the all-important, almost as important as a CEO job, of betting the entire company to write something called a marketing requirements document that defines what on earth the engineers and their crazy cubicles have to make. So several lessons in one there. So what happened? We failed to identify that market. At the last minute, by the way, we did realize it could help uh, cancer patients, but none of the venture capitalists we talked to in 2006 or 2007 cared. Some of them understood medical devices. Some of them kind of sort of understood displays, but no one understood both. And I'm sure we had a lot of missing pieces that they wouldn't tell us about, but that's another topic called, if they don't hand you a term sheet, they're saying no, uh, but they never say no. Phase three, I'm almost at the end here. Uh, we brought in yet another CEO after a very horrifically scary year where I was the CEO of a company of 20 people who I didn't hire. Uh, we raised a little bit more money and our CEO said, Greg, man, I love this display stuff. We got to stop making displays. No one's giving us money. But we know about drawing pictures of cancer. And we know how to do fast processing on this thing called the GPU. And I know a lot about prostate cancer. 
I know, let's convert the company into one that will write machine vision software to help radiation oncologists plan a very prevalent form of prostate cancer treatment called brachytherapy. Uh, it's gruesome and it's like a squeamish kind of thing, but essentially it's about a third of all prostate cancer patients get this if it's early stage prostate cancer where you put 100 little seeds that are radioactive into the prostate, which is about the size of a walnut, and it's really not visible too well on ultrasound. And we thought we would cure that problem, uh, and we almost sort of did. And to get there, I had to completely pivot. Man, I hate that word. And pivoting for us meant forget your photons, forget 3D displays, forget holograms. You're going to go to your physician, get like 10 vaccines, so you'd be allowed to sit in in these really bloody, scary procedures at like Brigham and Women's Hospital and stuff and watch all these things. And we learned a lot, and uh, it didn't help, because in 2009, the market tanked. So there we were. We had raised $15 million, which seems like a lot, but it's not over 12 years. All that was enough to do was make a product that just barely made a 3D image, and then year after year, we, just, we called it putting lipstick on the pig. Just improved it a little bit, but the core of it was kind of bad. Furthermore, we never figured out the market. So I urge you to raise more money than you need, especially if you're selling atoms and photons rather than bits, and really understand the market. So what happened? So in 2009, our CEO left. He said, Greg, I'm expensive. I'm going to do you a favor and leave. Good luck to you. Try to go close some deals. I looked at the books and realized I had one month of cash in the bank. So I pleaded to my employees, uh, can I just pay half as much and maybe help me put these things in boxes onto eBay? We called up. And you ever wonder, like, what do companies do that go out of business with all this stuff? There's a website called cleanoutyouroffice.com. And these two guys show up silently, like with this red carpet, and they kind of come and they take everything away silently. It's like the dude who fixes problems on that Tarantino movie, uh, Pulp Fiction. And, and they're cool because at least they share the profits with you, and that helps you do something. But we never threw away the patents. My board was smart enough to one day insist that I file 100 patents. That turned into 30 patent applications that turned into 20 patents. And we held on to those. And I tried to sell them because I thought I should go down with the ship or at least try my hardest for these 70 angel investors that I had. I got a job because I have a family. We tried for a year and a half to sell these patents, and everyone said no, except for one publicly traded company, and that was awesome. And we worked for months. My wife and I knew all our financial problems would disappear if we could just sell these, these patents. And then the week before signing, what happens? The president's gone from that company. So I'm like, oh my god. And I became like depressed. This stuff happens, and no one wants to talk about it. You get depressed because you think everything's solved, and then like the trap door is pulled under you. Uh, but our patent broker, and I could teach you about patent sales later if any of you care about that stuff, said, Greg, yours is not going to be the first patent portfolio I don't sell. We're going to keep doing this. So he kept at it for another six months. Finally, we got an offer from a company. With, and when a deal is going to happen, it happens. Like it just, there's no hemming and hawing. The paperwork gets done, and it's done. So just a couple weeks later, this thing was sold. So I had a small exit from it. My CEO had a small exit. And we wrote little tiny checks, you know, a couple dollars or a couple tens of thousands of dollars to people who have given us millions, but it was non-zero. And uh, that, that gave me some, some sort of refreshing uh, pause there. Anyway, if what I have said in the previous X minutes resonated with any of you, uh, Michael is making available to you all the full like 60 slide epic of this with a lot of tips on things like how to close a sale or what books to read to write your own patents and things like that, and that'll be on your website. Thank you. Thank you.